you know, if we were to go around, I'm sure you guys from your experiences or go to talk to anybody in a hospital or clinic and ask them, hey, what's broken? What doesn't work well here? They could probably give us a long list of things that should be better. Um, but how many people are going around and asking them that? I think is, is a, something to reflect on. And when they do ask them, how effective are we at actually addressing what their underlying concerns are? And can we actually put in place the solutions that they know they need or not? Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds, where we interview Dr. Lauga Sokolhasner. Dr. Sokolhasner is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard University and the associate director of inpatient quality improvement at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He is also faculty for the IHI Virtual Expedition, Is Your Organization Conversation Ready?, where he educates on end-of-life conversations with families and patients. We hope you enjoy this episode where we discuss the importance of quality improvement for medical leaders, difficult conversations, and more. As always, if you like what we're doing, give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with us on social media. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we are really excited to have Dr. Sokol Hessner on the show. Before we get started, Peter, how are you feeling today? Feeling really good. Had a productive lab meeting before I came here. You know, I'm just chugging away at research these days. Awesome. Good. Lauga, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. So when Peter and I were looking at your background, it's easy to see that you have a big passion for quality improvement in healthcare. And so can you tell us a little bit about what got you involved in that when you were kind of growing up in your medical training? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's a great question. I, um, uh, I actually began my career at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. And um, as I started work there as a hospitalist full time, I started just having patients who had bad things happen to them. Um, there were a couple that happened to be transfers from other hospitals. Um, and I found myself wondering, hey, why, why did this happen? And does the other hospital even know that that patient showed up with a complication? And what are we doing about that? And uh, honestly, it was just that curiosity about the patient in front of me that led me to ask questions to some of my uh, supervisors. And they said, well, there's this task force about transfers, why don't you join it and just help us figure out how to do this and work on this. And that led to my first QI project and it kind of snowballed from there over the years. And so Caleb and I were both served on the board of our IHI chapter here at um, our medical school. And I still feel like I'm learning a lot about QI and I, and I felt like I reached a point where I didn't really know where else to turn. So as someone, I know one of the positions that you serve in is on the uh, Masters of Healthcare Administration um, curriculum. And I wanted to ask, how does, how does one go about learning QI? How do, you, how do you even teach someone to do QI if they can't get on a specific project and who should really know about QI? Yeah, that's a great Lots of questions there. Um, I'll take the last one first, which is like, who should know about QI? And, uh, you know, uh, my, my perspective and approach, I guess, would be that uh, really anybody in healthcare who provides care should understand what general, general principles are of improvement and why quality is important. Um, 
I, I think that needs to be everybody's goal in many ways. Uh, everybody's going to have something different to contribute to that larger body of work of improving care, but we all need to know something about it. For physicians in particular, I, I actually think it's really critical because we are trained essentially to be leaders of clinical teams and uh, to be leading and guiding our patients and um, you know, making things better for people is really part of our job. And, and as doctors, we're also teachers. And I think a lot of what we need to do is be able to teach other people about how improvement happens so that they can be part of that work too. Um, as for how to learn about how to do it, uh, I think there are a lot of different ways to go about that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, my experience has been that I actually never got formal training in quality improvement methods. I just learned on the job and from other people and from having to teach it to other people, which was a great way to learn things. Um, and um, uh, so I, I think that's one option for people. And there are a lot of resources for people out there who wanna be self-taught. The, the IHI Open School, I think is a great example of that. And I actually use that for resources sometimes. I direct people there a lot. I've also done some work with IHI over the years and I think they have a really great way of, of getting out some of the general principles and, and things that people do. So that's, that's a free option, that's great. Um, and then I think there are more and more formal options beyond that that people can do. Um, there weren't a lot of them just a few years ago, but now they've developed. Um, so the master's I'm part of is actually a master's of healthcare quality and safety, MHQS, um, which is what Harvard calls it. Um, there are other similar types of master's programs focused on quality and safety at other organizations around the United States. Each of them has a slightly different flavor. Um, but I would say those are really uh, uh, the next level up in terms of formal training. Um, a lot of those programs are one or two years um, and really give you a broad background in quality, safety, methodology, some statistics, things like that. Um, and um, I think beyond that, there's yet another level, and that's the idea of a fellowship in quality and safety. So at the moment, I'm the program director and site director for the Harvard version of that, the Harvard Fellowship in Patient Safety and Quality. And um, it's a two-year fellowship. They do the master's, the MHQS, as part of the fellowship, and then they have mentored on-site operational quality improvement projects, and they learn from the senior leaders in their organizations that are le leading those efforts. Um, so it's a, it's a really, it's like an apprenticeship almost kind of model. And I think it's fantastic. It's, it's like amazing learning. And by the time they come out, they are assuming really significant leadership roles. And um, so that's, that's like the nth degree. That's a lot, you know, it's a big time commitment. It's hard, but for those that are really wanting to make it a big part of their career, something like that can make sense. But for everyone else, I think there are a lot of lower bars to, to get in, engaged, get involved that I would strongly encourage to, it doesn't have to be a, fellowship program to, to do quality improvement. But the fellowship sounds like the best of both worlds. Well, I, I personally, I'm biased, so <laughs> I think it's great. Um, uh, you know, but, I, but it's uh, not everywhere has that kind of resource. I also think, you know, uh, when I think about what it takes to make a really strong leader in quality improvement and patient safety, there are a lot of things you got to learn over time. And it, some of it, you just can't learn that quickly. It just takes time and experience. But um, I won't go through the big list, but so it's a big list. And one of the biggest things on there, in my mind, is actually what I would consider leadership competencies, which are just any leader should have these competencies. A lot of physicians should have these competencies, but you know, the ability to reflect on yourself, emotional intelligence, the ability to relate to other people, to speak publicly, to communicate clearly, both in writing and in person, and all of these you know, sorts of skills that actually 
are really critical to managing your work. How do, how do you manage a meeting? How do you facilitate a meeting? All of this kind of stuff that actually you use every single day. And it's through that, those skills that you actually build your awareness, you understand your own areas where you need to do more improvement for yourself, um, and you actually develop your influence as a leader. And so those sorts of leadership development programs, even though they may not have anything about QI in them, are actually some of the most important things. I did go through one of those um, earlier in my career, and I found it transformative. Um, so I would, you know, th those are also great opportunities for people. The, the content of quality improvement, you can often learn on your own or through the IHI Open School, but the leadership stuff is, is um, requires a little bit of a different approach than an online approach. And I think it's really worth it. So. What were the, some of the things you were able to take away from that leadership course? Yeah, so um, I think an increasing number of places have programs like that. They're often internal to hospitals or facilities. Ours is, was called the Physician Leadership Development Program. It was a year-long thing. Um, you got paired with a coach, basically like a career coach um, or a life coach kind of thing, um, uh, who is part of organizational development, and uh, which is a, a department in the hospital. And um, they would do a number of things. You would often begin with an assessment. Um, so they had us do our Myers-Briggs. Um, you can do the Enneagram, it's similar. Um, uh, I actually thought that was pretty great and fascinating. Um, you do a 360 degree evaluation. So you ask your peers and your supervisors and direct reports as the terminology goes, you know, how am I as a leader? How is it working with me? And then you get their anonymous feedback back uh, from them. Um, it's a very structured process and the coach helps you interpret and, and uh, figure out what to do about that. Um, you go through a public speaking course. So it's, it's all that kind of stuff along the way. Plus there are classes on things like negotiation and uh, mediation and um, other important leadership skills. I think conflict management, stuff like that. Um, so I, all of those pieces for me were really valuable. And I, I think the coach relationship was one of the most valuable. It's, it's kind of like a career counselor. It's like, I just had the worst meeting ever and I'm not sure why and what I did wrong. And like, did I make a big mistake? And they can talk you down and talk you through it. And actually that's like really helpful. And Although I did it, I don't remember how many years ago now, I'm still friends with my coach and we're still on a first name basis and we haven't talked in years. It's that you get a real deep relationship. So you don't mind me asking who was your coach? Joan Balaban was my coach and Joan is great. And, um, you know, there are a lot of coaches out there for folks that don't have that kind of resource in their hospital. Um, you can hire your own coach and, and there are lots of good ones out there that actually specifically coach physicians. Um, I actually did that recently for myself and found it super helpful. That's how I know what an Enneagram is. I didn't know until then. Um, so there, there are a lot of ways to get that kind of guidance in your career if you're looking for it. Um, and I, I uh, yeah, I think it's really useful. The other big part of that that I'd say is really strategic but wasn't immediately obvious is that when you go through a program like that in your hospital, you're going through with a cohort of your peers. And so I actually, that cohort of peers, I know those people at a whole nother level, uh, like personally, really. Um, and uh, my subsequent interactions with them years down the road are totally different because I met them in that capacity. And that actually improves my influence as a leader to be able to know them and about them and how they, you know, some parts of their lives. So it's, uh, there's a lot of, lot of benefit to leaning into that kind of program. So one thing I've always thought about when it comes to QI, especially in medicine, is my understanding is that a lot of these principles have been adapted from things like Six Sigma, which have been uh, established in industries such as the automotive industry or, or business. So what is, what is fundamentally different about medical QI that distinguishes it from the original 
quality improvement movement that happened in industry? Yeah, you know, the um, Six Sigma, Lean, PDSA, the Toyota model, like all of these things, there are a lot of different approaches to making things better out there. And I think they all have a role. Um, it's a little, there are a lot of things like this in healthcare and medicine where we kind of keep reinventing the re wheel every few years. And if you look back, it's like, well, we've had that wheel for many years. It just looks a little different. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I'm not sure that one is necessarily better or worse than the other. I actually think the, a lot of, a lot of folks, when they start out in QI, I find that they want to know what are the tools, like what are the QI tools I need to know to do the work. And the tools are really important things like process mapping or fish bones or root cause analysis or lean or whatever. Um, those are really useful, but I actually think the larger skills in my mind are things that it's really about knowing what are the right questions to ask and how to understand where a project is and how to take it to the next step. And that sounds sort of vague and basic, but it's, it's really like, okay, we have a problem. Is it actually a problem? Like how big a problem is it? Who cares about this problem? Should we even work on this? Okay, fine, we're gonna work on it. Well, what's the nature of the problem? Why is the problem happening? And who's involved in that? You know, it's that, that's the kind of stuff that I think is really the learned skill over time that actually allows someone to really develop a real career in quality improvement. If you just dive in and you fix everything that comes to light, it's like you're, you're a hammer and everything you see is a nail. That's actually not a great way to go about it, especially in our healthcare system where resources are limited, people are tired, you don't have that many opportunities to get them to try and change. Because if you try once and it doesn't work, they're gonna be like, well, I'm not listening to you anymore because that was terrible. <laughs> so you have, we actually have to be really strategic to be good, effective change agents, so. I want to ask you about just that then. I think everybody goes into quality improvement projects with a positive outlook that they're going to change so much and have a huge effect on the hospital and how it functions. But many times, you know, staff and, and everyone sees these projects as more work that they have to do. And it ends up being grumbling instead of everybody working together to improve the system. So how do we make quality improvement something that everybody buys into and that everybody works towards instead of just being another requirement that the staff has to check boxes and mark things off? Yeah, boy, that's a good question. I think if we could solve that one easily, we'd be, we'd be making big bucks <laughs> or I don't know what, but um, no, I, you know, you're, it's such a great point. And I, um, sometimes QI has a dirty name or a dirty reputation because of that, because people have had bad experiences with it. And I, I, maybe I'm a little harsh on leaders, but I think that's really on leaders. And I think it's on how leaders choose what to work on and how they work on it um, and, um, and how responsive they are to what people are saying they need. So, you know, if we were to go around, I'm sure you guys from your experiences or go to talk to anybody in a hospital or clinic and ask them, hey, what's broken? What doesn't work well here? <laughs> they could probably give us a long list of things that should be better. Um, but how many people are going around and asking them that? I think is, is a, something to reflect on. And when they do ask them, how effective are we at actually addressing what their underlying concerns are? And can we actually put in place the solutions that they know they need or not? And, and you know, where are our real opportunities there? So for me, I, like I mentioned, I think it's really about being strategic. Just because we have risks or problems in our environment doesn't mean that there's a good opportunity to address them in our current state. Um, you know, healthcare finance in the United States is not great. Our incentives are not well aligned. There are a lot of underlying broken big problems. And um, if we throw our energy and attention at things that really we fundamentally can't get better because something foundational is broken there, 
we're never going to make meaningful progress. We're just going to use resources, including time, people's will to change, all that other stuff. So we, why do that if there's somewhere else that we could be spending that time and resource that actually would make things better? And so I think that from a leadership perspective, that's where I think leaders really need to be paying attention so that whatever resources are spent are really spent wisely and actually results in sustained change. So then, then we can come back and solve more difficult problems later. But it's, um, it's, it, is, um, it is really tricky, I think, to, to navigate some of those challenges with frontline folks. I know I've, there've been plenty of times where someone's trying to change something and I'm, I'm thinking, well, I don't wanna do that. I'm busy and I got my way of doing it and it works for me, so, so lay off. <laughs> um, you know, some of that, I, I, one of the concepts that's out there, it's called the innovation adoption curve. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it's basically a bell curve and uh, it splits the bell curve into different groups. And the tail end at the beginning are the innovators. Those are the people who are coming up with the new ideas and want, want to change things. And then the group after that is the early adopters, those that are, you know, it's a larger group. They may not be coming up with the ideas, but they say, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it. And they just take up the new idea and they run with it. And then there's the late adopters. And then the other side of the curve um, actually gets down to the what they call the laggards, which is <laughs> very colloquial, I guess, but people who actually oppose change and really don't want it to work. Um, and I think that's that idea that in every organization, you're going to have people in every part of that curve, and you just got to figure out who you want to work with and what you're going to move forward. Because a lot of times, if it's a big project, you're not going to make everyone happy. Um, someone might have a reason that they want things to be the way they are. And as a leader, you have to make that difficult choice. Is this change, is this improvement important enough that we're going to do it, even though maybe not everyone's going to be super happy? So it's, it's a challenge. So we had... Um... A previous guest who actually talked about the innovation adoption curve. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and um, so I want, and, and he, it seems like anyone who I've ever talked to about this on the show or just in, in life, because I work in tech and uh, in biotech, the, everyone seems to be pro innovation. Innovation, but I, I kind of heard the way you were describing it. There might be a benefit to being one of the quote unquote laggards. Is, is that true? Do you do you see any benefit for the the late adopters when it comes to QI? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, um, not all innovation is good. Uh, like not all new ideas are good ideas. A lot of them are bad ideas, <laughs> right? Um, I, I actually, just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. I, so uh, for example, I'm probably a real big laggard when it comes to AI and patient safety or quality. Like I certainly there's probably a role for it and maybe I'm just too old or something, but I sort of think to myself, wait, we know what the problems are. We know what we want to be fixing. We're just having trouble fixing them because we need more resources or this or that. Doing more analysis with a computer program that I don't really understand how it's working, how is that going to help me <laughs> um, when I already have known priorities and things that I know need to be getting fixed? So I'm probably a laggard there. I'm probably being somewhat oppositional, but um, that innovation being brought to patient safety, I'm really curious to see 10 to 20 years down the road, what happens to that? Like what comes out of that? I think we have a, we had a similar thing with checklists, right? The checklist manifesto came out. I love that book. It's great. Made me think about a lot of things, but not everything's amenable to a checklist and trying to make everything into a checklist isn't always the right choice. And so this is another part of that leadership part of quality improvement, I think is saying, okay, we've got a problem. We kind of understand it. We think there might be an opportunity for improvement here, but can we actually design a solution that's going to work? Or is that actually too difficult where we really can't come up with the right thing? Um, and so we should actually stop and not implement because it might actually make things worse. Um, 
Or is there a way that we could change the design of this thing that we're going to implement so that it actually does just work? You know, it hits the ground and it just kind of works. There are things in our lives, right? Like technology or other stuff that you pick up and instantly you can figure out how it works. It might be a website, it might be an iPhone, whatever. It's just, it's intuitive enough that it works. And that's actually like the product of a lot of design thinking and a lot of user-centered stuff and human factors. Um, that's not by accident, that's very intentional. But in healthcare, we're not trained in human factors or user-centered design or how to create those things. And so a lot of the times the changes we come up with are actually not the right changes. They're poorly designed. And that's part of why when they hit the ground and people are like, well, that's terrible. I don't want to use this. It doesn't work. And so I think not only do we need to be strategic about should we, is this even a problem? Should we fix this problem? Can we fix this problem? But how are we going to fix this problem is actually a really, if we, we can answer those questions really well, then I think we have an innovations that are really great. But if not, then it's a bad innovation. And then maybe everybody should be a laggard and say no. <laughs> when I think about like creating change, I think two big things are choosing the right problem, like we talked about, and then also like inspiring others to want to be better, to want to do better in the healthcare system. What other things do you think are really vital to pick a good project or to to implement something that really works? Yeah. Well, so picking a good project is really tricky, um, like we've been talking about. I think one of the most important things is to think about who else might care about this problem? Like, why does this problem matter? Is this just a thing that I really care about, that I think is really important, that I'm really passionate about, but nobody else does? <laughs> um, or is this something that I'm actually hearing a lot of people say they agree this is an issue that needs to be addressed? And I think that latter group is a far better group to be working on. You will go much further, much faster if you're doing it with other people than rather than on your, on by yourself. So I think that's that's a really important part. And then the design piece, I think, this is one of the things that I and PDA have really home, hammered home, which is you got to test it. You, you can't just make up a change idea and then implement it and hope it's going to work. You got to try it out in as close to the real environment as you can to say, okay, in real life conditions, how's this going to perform? Like, is it going to fall flat or is it people pick it up and they say, oh, that's great. I can do this. And then they just use it. Um, and I think the more testing we can do, small tests of change, small rapid cycle tests of change, the better we actually get at design because we're basically quickly, quickly collecting data and then adjusting our design. So I think those are those are some simple ways to begin thinking about it. But it's um, those are some of the most important questions. Who else cares about this? And like, have we tested it? I do want to ask you about your other um, interest, which is end of life care. And previously, you were talking about when we choose the right question, we need to be strategic in what questions it is. And I think when it comes to end of life care, it becomes even more difficult to pick the right question because sometimes the smallest things can have the biggest impact on the quality of the care for the patient. And so I wanna know as a leader in your field, how did you come across the idea of the conversation ready project? And how did you identify that as like the question that you felt was going to be impactful and people cared about and related to all the things that we just been describing in terms of effective QI and leader, leadership in QI? Yeah, no, thanks. Um, I should start by saying I certainly wasn't the one who came up with the whole conversation ready idea. I, I certainly helped shape a lot of what my how my hospital interpreted that concept and how we've implemented it. Um, and I would by no means say our work is done. We have a lot, a lot left to do. Um, but really that project came out of the IHI and the conversation project. So the conversation project is this 
uh, public information campaign designed to get everyone to express their end-of-life care wishes so that they can be respected at the end of life. Um, and how they talk about it has shifted over the years, but that's it's basically trying to reach people where they live, work, and pray and get them to appreciate that how they're cared for at the end of their life is really important. As they began that work, they realized, okay, that's great if we can get everybody in the public to talk about this and go talk with their healthcare teams. But if those healthcare teams aren't ready to talk about it with them, it's not actually going to translate into meaningful improvements in care. So we better work on the providers and the organizations too. And so that's the concept of conversation ready. They want the the, con the healthcare system to be ready to have the conversation with patients about end-of-life care. So that's where it began. Um, and as they did that, there was a, a lot of thought leaders who came together and sort of said, well, what should that work look like? What are the key principles in becoming a conversation-ready organization? And they articulated a number of different things, um, exemplify, uh, engage, steward, respect, um, these sort of principles about how do you do the work um, connect was another one. Um, and uh, that's out of that, those concepts have really grown the work. So exemplify, for example, as well, if we're telling our patients that they need to do end of life care planning, well, we should probably do it for ourselves too, like as providers, as people. So if I'm going to tell my patient, you need to choose a healthcare proxy um, or complete a living will, well, I should probably do the same thing for myself um, so that I actually know what I'm asking them to do. So that's exemplify. Um, engage is reach, figuring out how to reach out and, and talk with people and start those conversations. What words do you use? When do you do it? Who do you involve? Um, connect is about doing that in a, in a culturally aware, culturally sensitive manner, being, um, having cultural humility, basically. Um, steward is whenever you learn something from the patient, you write it down so that somebody can keep track of it and you can get it later so that it's not lost to the ether. Um, as if the conversation had never happened. And really respect is about, well, how do we actually use all of that process to actually make sure that we're respecting their end-of-life care wishes because that's our ultimate goal. How does this process of advanced care planning actually lead us towards more respectful end-of-life care? So that's that's sort of the genesis of it and how it um, came to be. I'm just more curious about how, how you came to choose that as the thing that you wanted to work on also. Oh, well, this... <laughs> That's a good question. Honestly, this was one of those like, hey, do you want to work on a QI project around end of life care? We're going to give you a little protected time to do that. Um, and I was like, uh, yeah, great, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, that's a little, I mean, a little flippant, but it was really, it was actually the first time I had had someone say, we'd like you to help with this and we're going to give you, you know, five or 10% of your salary. We'll get paid just to do this. You don't have to go see patients for that five to 10% because we want you to work on this and have time to work on it. And so I left at that opportunity. I mean, that's actually the first foot in the door that I got that now led to all the things I do now. So um, I happen to actually also have a strong interest in end-of-life care um, around that time. So as a hospitalist at the University of Washington and then here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where I am now, we're dealing with incredibly complicated, very sick patients who've been managing serious illness in their lives for often a long time, many of whom are near the end of life. And so it's actually my bread and butter as a hospitalist to be doing a lot of stuff that people would consider palliative care. Um, and yeah, I'll definitely involve the palliative care consultant if I need to, if there's like a specialized situation, but it's kind of like as a general internist, I should be able to manage hypertension and atrial fibrillation without having to consult a cardiologist. I should be able to manage goals of care conversations and basic palliative care without having to consult a palliative care doc. And so for me, it actually was a core competency. It still is. And I 
I had a strong interest because those were some of my most challenging patients. And so when I had the opportunity to work on the project, it not only aligned with my interests, but it was also a great way to really learn some QI on the job. Something that I've seen many times in the hospital is a patient's extremely sick in the ICU, non-responsive, and you have to talk to a family member. And, and the healthcare team maybe believes that the care past this point would be futile and causing more harm to the patient, but the family still wants you to do everything and wants you to keep going. And so I know this definitely, you know, plays into what you're talking about. And maybe if the patient had what they wanted listed and talked to their family members beforehand, it would be dealt with better. But at that point, if they haven't prepared for that moment, what would you say as a part of the healthcare team to that family to try to bridge that gap? And how would you work on work through that conversation? Yeah, those situations happen all too often. Um, and I would argue that there's some of the most stressful for us as healthcare professionals, especially in training. There's a lot of moral distress that can come out of those situations. So they, they garner a lot of attention um, and totally agree with you. You know, more advanced care planning would have helped maybe uh, in those sorts of situations. If it was clear what that patient would have wanted in that situation, be great to just refer to that, especially if their family already knew that and you could just work through the decisions that needed to be made more quickly. But often, as you point out, that's not the case. So um, there's a really great article about this sort of specific, or a lot of articles, but one that I really like about it that's really brief, I encourage folks to look at is um, by Josh Lakin, L-A-K-I-N, he's at the Dana-Farber. And he writes about this concept of the tug of war between the clinical team and the family in the, exactly the kind of situation you just described, where the clinical team is like pulling on the rope, basically trying to get the family to come over to their side to realize how bad the prognosis is and how more treatment is just futile. And the family on the other side is like, realizes things are not good because their loved one is intubated in the ICU. And they're tugging back because they don't think the healthcare team sees it. And they think their healthcare team might be giving up on their loved one. And there's a lot that's left unsaid. And ultimately it becomes this tug of war that nobody can win. And there's a complete breakdown in the therapeutic relationship between the tear team and the family. And so what he talks is about how do you put down that tug of war, stop making it a tug of war and actually connect with people and I think this is, you know, this is the art of doctoring and, and figuring out how to be, empath, you know, empathic and understand where people are coming from and, and not try to berate them into realizing, you know, taking your point of view around futility, but really understanding where they are, accepting that, meeting them where they are, and then helping them take the next step that's the right next step for them. Um, and that's hard for us to do as healthcare professionals. We're taught to take charge and, you know, say we're going to do this, this, and this. And we're very good with our check boxes and getting our lists done, right? Um, but this is not one of those sorts of situations. So I think, you know, some of the conversation techniques that people can use to try and bridge that gap and form those connections are really just sitting down with that family, literally sitting down, making sure that you make time for it, and then having that open-ended, hey, can you tell me a little bit about your loved one? You know, what was a good day for them? What, what, you know, did they have a job? Were they in school? What was their life like before they got sick? Begin to understand that patient as a person. Um, and then at some point in that conversation, there's, you know, under, getting a sense of what that family's understanding is of the diagnosis and the prognosis. Just where, what do they, do they get it already? Or are they not actually aware that there's kidney failure and heart failure and renal failure um, or whatever, you know, is, is, um, is there a lot of stuff going on that you need to bring them up to speed about? Um, and once they've got some decent prognostic awareness, then I think there's 
a, a real pivot point is what I call it, or a transition point, which is the hope worry. And I think the hope worry combined statement is a really powerful one. Um, Josh Lakin writes about this too, but it's, um, it's the idea, you know, we are all hoping that your loved one will get better, but we're also really worried that that might not happen. Would it be okay if we talk about a plan B just in case they don't get better? And could we at least entertain that scenario? And how would we want to proceed? And we don't have to make a decision today, but we just want to begin talking about that. So that kind of thing can really pivot into allowing people to hold the two things, with the hope that things will get better. And if they don't, we'll at least have a plan. And I think that's one path forward. It doesn't always work. <laughs> Sometimes it's really hard anyways. But I think in many situations, doing that with real compassion, respect, empathy can actually make a lot of inroads. Um, and sometimes people just need more time, right? It takes a long time for people to come to grips with how sick the phone might be. This kind of gets at something that I've always wondered, which is um, as medical students, we're, we're taught conversation techniques and all these things to practice as we uh, get better in the art of doctoring. And um, no doubt that they come from people's QI studies or you know uh, just studies on patient interactions with doctors and in the effort to standardize the way that we care for patients. And I've always wondered at what point does standardization become deleterious? And it almost seems like standardization and humanism at a point, especially when it comes to sensitive topics like end of life care, kind of are at odds sometimes. So, you know, we want to clearly standardization has been proven to be good in the way that we can improve care through standardized procedures. But at what point, you know, does humanism take over? Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, you know, I just described, for example, one approach that you could take towards a family in the ICU. Depending on the family and the situation, that really might not be the right approach, <laughs> right? Like it, it could backfire, it could not go well. Um, you know, for example, what if I'm actually not talking to the right family member and I followed my checklist perfectly, but I forgot to check who's the healthcare proxy or the durable power of attorney? Like, you know, that we can't have a checklist for everything. Um, and checklists can be useful reminders or tools for how to do things, but they're really not, uh, as we mentioned before, not a panacea. Um, I'm a big proponent of standardization um, because I think the, the process of coming up with, the, with a standard approach is really valuable because the process involves identifying who the experts are, um, getting the right people at the table, so to speak, and then having a series of conversations and coming to some sort of consensus around what are the key principles in this work. And for me, that's, that's the important outcome that we've identified the big things that we need to be thinking about um, and how we handle those um, along the way. But despite all that, all that being said, if you can come up with a standard process for something, I, it's just like QI. It's not like that's the right tool for every situation. You got to be strategic about when you apply that tool. And maybe a tool is applied 95% of the time, but that 5%, you better be really aware that it's not the right time before you apply that. So I think we always need to apply our brain, use our brain when we're doing stuff with patients. We can't just shut it off and follow the list or the checklist or the computer or whatever it's telling us to do. Um, and that's the art of doctrine, right? That's the we can learn a lot of science. We need a lot of science, but we'll never be able to uh, automate everything we do. I read the TED speaking book by Chris Anderson, and he was talking about the process you go through of memorizing a speech. And he said, like at the beginning, you know, you try to say it so perfectly that you just sound like you're just reading it. Right. And, and it's so like yeah. standardized and robotic. 
But once you get past that, you know it so well that you can bring your personality into it and bring those inflections in your voice. And that kind of makes sense to me with what we're talking about too. Once you know the process and the steps so well, and it's so ingrained in you, then you can add the humanism you can add the reflections and really interact with somebody and just, instead of just thinking, what's my next step, what's my next step and just being robotic. I, I, I love that you said that actually. And um, I realize this is part of your original question that I'd sort of forgotten, but I, I completely agree. I think the purpose in learning the skills along the way and learning to do them a certain way and learning the phrases and stuff like that is so that they are in your toolbox so that you can use them when it's the right moment and that you don't have to figure out how to use them because you've practiced it enough that you can just use them. And that allows you to then draw on all of these tools, bringing them to bear on whatever the problem is. But if you haven't actually practiced with those tools and it's the first time you're using it, you're not going to be able to do that meta thinking about which is the right tool or how do I pause here and check in with someone because they just started crying or whatever it is. You know, the, one of the ways I think about it is that in a conversation with someone, end of life care situation, there's almost like two parallel conversations happening. There's like the words that are actually getting spoken that are coming out of people's mouths. And then there's all the emotion that's flying overhead and the relationship between you and whoever you're talking to. And you actually have to be I would argue it's almost 50-50. Like your attention needs to be spent on both of those. You need to be paying attention to both. And where people usually fall into trouble is that they forget there's that emotional conversation happening and all they're focusing on is the words. And they're not actually attending to all the emotion um, or the relationship in the room. And they're not forming a connection with someone. And so the more that we're used to all the other pieces of things and we can actually think about two things at once, I think the better position we are. And that's where the practice comes in. And that's where standardization, I think, is most useful. Have you read um, Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, I think it's called The Art of Talking to Strangers or just Talking to Strangers? I have not, no, but it sounds like maybe I should. It's all about that um, secondary conversation that's happening around it. And he he ties it into a lot of historical um it's a great read. Uh, I read it a while ago. I can't remember anything really specific, but that's the general theme of the book. And I, you know, all his books kind of cover a specific theme like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And and he's also the one that talks a lot about 10,000 hours of practice. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's something, it's something to that, right. It's, it's, it's basically freeing your mind. It's, it's reducing your cognitive. It's the to remove, you're just in your germane cognitive load <laughs> on that new task. Cause you're not learning the new task anymore frees up your cognitive load to deal with these other inputs that you're getting about how someone's reacting. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I think the end of life discussions are difficult for multiple ways. We've talked a lot about the conversation itself, but then afterwards for the medical team, it can be difficult. And you brought that up earlier on ourselves, whether it's making us, you know, we're just, you know, sad and distraught or even making us jaded. And I've seen that so much in, in my colleagues. And then even, you know, seeing patients, you see it in yourself and you're like, no, like, like I shouldn't think that way. I shouldn't act that way. But like, it's, it can be very easy to get jaded and to, to not see, you know, people as people almost. And so what suggestions do you have avoiding that when you're dealing with all these difficult issues in end of life care? Yeah. Um, You know, the whole idea of moral distress is this concept that uh, we encounter moral distress when we feel um, 
somebody should be getting cared for a certain way, but they're not wanting that or they're choosing a different path. And we have this cognitive dissonance between what we think is the right thing and what's actually happening. Um, that's one way to think about moral distress. I'm sure there's a better definition out there somewhere. But um, for me, that, that conflict, internal conflict that we have, that distress that occurs is uh, really based in two things. One, uh, is that that person has their own worldview of how they want things to be and they have their own perspective. And two, that I am imposing my view of what the right thing is for them, presuming that I know what the right thing is for them onto that situation. And I fundamentally haven't really accepted their life view because if I did accept their life view, then I would sort of be, uh, it wouldn't be, there wouldn't be dissonance, right? I would just say, hey, they're gonna figure out the right path for them. And my job is to guide and support them in that process. And so. I, you know, I've personally had a lot of moral distress over time. And I think the thing that has freed me from it is trying to reframe how I think about those situations and say, I'm, I, as I sort of spoke to there, I, I, I'm a guide, I'm a coach, I'm a, uh, um, I'm not here to tell them what the right thing is for them. Um, I'm here to offer my experience, um, share what I've seen happens, um, offer my professional opinion. Um, and I wanna guide them towards what I think will be a good outcome for them, but I'm not, it's not my choice. It's not my fundamental responsibility to make them think a certain thing. And um, if they choose to, to take that opinion and, and go with it and you know, take my perspective, then great. And if they don't, I wanna check in with myself and make sure I've done whatever I can to connect with them and make sure that I'm speaking respectfully to them, that I'm seeing them as a person. But um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not here to force them to conform to my worldview. And so for me, that's helped me release me, I think, from it. Um, that and I think as part of that, getting trying to get better at understanding why is it that people feel the way they do? Like, why do they have the perspective that they do? It's probably, if, if I'm confused about that, it probably means I don't know enough about them or there's something that I just haven't seen yet or I've, I've assumed or I haven't paid attention to. And what are some questions or ways that I could approach them with curiosity and humility that could help me understand where they're coming from. So that even at the end of the day, if I don't agree with that, or I wouldn't want that for myself, I at least understand why they feel the way they do. And that too can help relieve me. Um, those are, um, we often, I think, blow past those moments in conversation where we're making those quick assumptions and judgments. And for me, I think trying to slow that down and stop blowing past those has, has been a lot of what's helped me. This reminds me a lot of an article you wrote in 2015 in the BMJ Quality Safety Journal, um, where you define dignity and respect. And one thing I wanted to make sure I asked you was that since, since then, um, since you wrote that article, has, has your idea um, around the discussions that you, like around the end of life discussions and making sure that you're, you're giving patients the dignity and respect that they deserve during these conversations has it changed with with the fact that in the past i think in the past five years really we've come to have a more nuanced idea of what diversity and cultural humility is yeah um i think uh, i think our world is going through an evolution and uh i, I you know i couldn't presume that we're all the way through it, I think we're still really evolving a lot on all of the issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and many people's eyes are being opened 
to things that they had not seen or appreciated before. And I think that's gonna continue happening for a long time. Um, you know, I, the, the way we define dignity and respect in that paper are really grounded in, in um, longstanding principles and concepts that we didn't really make, they weren't new ideas. We basically called dignity the intrinsic unconditional value of every person. Every person has dignity just because they're a person. They don't have to deserve it, they just have it. Um, and um, uh, I, I like that. That actually aligns very well with the way the United Nations thinks about it in the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and, uh, and many other scholars out there. And that respect are the actions that we take towards other people that honor and acknowledge their dignity, that recognize their humanity, basically. And it, so it's a circular definition. They kind of you know, rely on each other. It's very purposeful. Um, and we talk mostly about respect because that's what we do as healthcare professionals is it's the actions that we're taking or not taking. Um, whereas dignity is sort of this constant value that's out there. I think the, the conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion for me are add another layer to what it means to respect somebody, to what it means to honor and acknowledge um, their underlying humanity. Um, you know, I think understanding concepts like structural racism and uh, the ways in which our patients and their lives are shaped by these factors, for me, that's a huge part of being able to honor and acknowledge their dignity, right? I have to understand that if I wanna understand where they're coming from. Um, so I think there, there's a lot, I, 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 I sort of, it's like an ongoing life thing. You're just trying to learn about that stuff. I, in my, I, I think for me, it's just kind of a long-term goal to get better at that. Um, but but uh, having those concepts in my head early and beginning to try and understand them and attend to them has helped me a lot, I think, in opening my eyes to interactions and people and humanity in ways that I, I didn't have before that, so. You mentioned it's going to be a long-term process of learning. Peter and I are both really interested in learning, love learning. And the last question we always ask everybody is a few books that you suggest for future medical leaders. We both think, you know, leaders are readers and leaders continually love to learn. And so we would like to know from you, what are a few books that you have impacted you and you would suggest to medical leaders? Yeah. Um... Uh, I, um, I think one of the big ones for me was, um, Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. Um, I actually spent some time living in Southern Africa and did some work in some medical settings there and some research. And I think being in that place as a white man and then reading that book was really eye-opening. and he's just an incredible person. Um, and the way he writes about his struggle. And, um, for me, that was a, that was a really big impactful one. So that one, um, somebody a bunch of years ago, actually around the time I started getting introduced, interested in the conversation ready work, um, I discovered um, Cotter's Eight Steps of Change. So John Cotter is a Harvard professor that studied organizations and how they change. And somebody showed me the eight steps and my eyes like just got big and I was like, oh my God, this is it. Like, I finally understand. I've been looking for this my whole life and I had no idea. Um, so he, he's got a book called The Iceberg is Melting and um, it's a funny story about penguins that talks about the eight steps. And I, I personally found that transformative. It's all about how do you manage change and how do you promote change? And so as somebody who wants to change things, it was great. Um, and then the last one is actually a recent book um, and it's Brian Stevens's uh, Just Mercy. Um, and I really, there's a movie about it too, but I, um, I didn't really, that one for me was just um, that and hearing him speak about it as well, I think were some of the most 
recent influential uh, things that I've read. It's, um, um, I think some of the things that he writes about apply to quality improvement and how, how we do when there our work. And then some of them are just to the issues of respect and dignity for others. So those are three. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time to come and talk. I really enjoyed this conversation. Caleb, I don't know about you, but I learned a lot. I definitely did as well. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting and having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.